Alex has the night off. And what a night it is. For the past two hours, we have been speed reading the newly unredacted affidavit that the government used to get a search warrant for Trump's Mar-a-Lago club last year. Full disclosure, NBC was part of a group of media organizations that sued to get this affidavit unredacted. And now it is out. It is not totally unredacted, but it is way, way less redacted than the original version. So we have been comparing and contrasting the two as fast as we can. Again, this thing just came out two hours ago. But the thing that jumped out at us immediately was this. The newly unredacted sections of the affidavit give us a much better understanding of what the government could see on the surveillance footage it got from Mar-a-Lago. There's fun details we didn't have before, like how the cameras were motion activated. But really, it's what the cameras couldn't see that sticks out. On July 6th of last year, the Trump Organization provided the FBI with a hard drive containing the footage of four cameras. All four of those cameras were in the basement hallway leading to the storage room where Trump had been keeping these classified documents. Now, that's a pivotal part of how the Justice Department knew documents were being moved in and out of that storage room. But those cameras did not capture what was happening upstairs at Mar-a-Lago, which is what makes this interesting. This is from that same affidavit from August of last year. Quote, the investigation has established that other boxes were moved from the storage room to other locations in the premises, including the former president of the United States residential suite in Pine Hall. So how, if the video cameras only captured what was happening in the basement, how did the government know the exact rooms where these documents had been brought upstairs? There are two big potential options. Number one, the government may have intercepted communication. They may have a text or an email from inside Trump's orbit that they obtained that told them where these documents were brought. Or option number two. They might have had a human source, someone on the inside who by August of last year, when they filed this affidavit for a search warrant, was already talking to them. Do not know, but there is one other tiny detail from this newly unredacted filing that I want to show you. Now, do you remember Walt Nauta, the Trump aide who stands accused of helping Trump move classified documents to hide them from investigators? He is listed as Trump's co-conspirator on the indictment. He is central to this case. But in this newly unredacted affidavit, he is referred to as Witness 5, meaning there were at least four other witnesses the government talked to and referenced in what must still be sealed portions of this affidavit. So who were they? And could they or not have talked? We're going to get some expert help breaking everything from this new filing done in just a second. But there's one part of this that I think I can answer. Early last month, when Trump was arraigned in a federal court in Miami, his alleged co-conspirator, His White House valet, Walt Nauta, appeared alongside him. Nauta rode in Trump's motorcade on the way there, went with him after court to a stop at a local Cuban restaurant, Versailles. Here the two are, again, just this past Friday at a Philly cheesesteak shop in Philadelphia. Trump and Nauta haven't just been alleged co-conspirators. They have been tied at the hip. But nearly a month after Trump's arraignment, Nauta himself has still yet to be arraigned. His arraignment keeps being delayed and delayed. And the reason that Nada is giving for this nearly month-long delay is that he claims he is having trouble finding a lawyer to represent him. Now, having lived in Florida, I can tell you there are plenty of lawyers there. So what's going on here? Last week, people familiar with the matter told The Guardian the part of the delay came from the fact that Nada had picked a local lawyer. But then that lawyer and the group fitting Nada's legal bills had a dispute about the lawyer's fees. 
So who's paying not as legal bills, you might ask? The Guardian reports that it is none other than Donald Trump's Save America PAC. Now, it's not abnormal for someone in a position like Walt Nauta's to have their legal bills covered by someone else. Nauta was a White House valet. He got Trump his Cokes, carried his boxes from room to room. He wasn't exactly raking in the big bucks. So Trump's PACs paying his legal bills, that makes sense. But it also signals something. It signals that Trump and Nauta aren't just alleged co-conspirators. They appear to also be co-defendants working together, likely not turning on each other. Nauta is set to be arraigned tomorrow. In Miami, at 11 a.m., we will see who he has as local counsel then. But this isn't the only indictment Trump has to worry about. And that means that keeping Nauda on his side isn't just important in this case. It's also setting a precedent. Just in the past few weeks, we've seen high-up Trump affiliates brought in to talk with special counsel Jack Smith in his other investigation, the investigation into Trump's attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Rudy Giuliani, Trump's former lawyer, and Mike Roman, one of the orchestrators of Trump's fake elector scheme, both of them have reportedly met with Jack Smith as part of proffer agreements. Some of the fake electors themselves have been offered immunity in exchange for their testimony. So as special counsel Jack Smith's investigation heats up, there is a very live question about who will flip and who won't, who could be a co-conspirator, and who could be a cooperating witness? Joining us now, Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for national security at the Department of Justice, and Andrew Weissman, former lead prosecutor for the Mueller investigation, and former leader of the Justice Department's fraud section. They are also both the co-hosts of my favorite MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Mary, Andrew, thank you both so much for being with us tonight. All right, Mary, I watched all our producers had the two affidavits up on their screens, looking at them side by side. What stood out to you as noteworthy in this less redacted FBI affidavit? Well, to start off, I mean, there's not a lot, there's not really much we learn new that isn't in the indictment, because, of course, this was an affidavit in support of a search warrant conducted nearly a year ago at this point. And we've only recently seen the indictment, which includes, you know, more than what we've now seen in the redacted, even the unreact, partially unredacted um, affidavit. But I did think it was notable, you know, a few things that uh, that were just sort of interesting. The use of the photograph of 60 something boxes in the storage room to just show um, in that affidavit that Trump knew even back in November of 2021, when the National Archivist was trying to get the return of just what they thought were presidential records, he knew that even after he'd been looking at boxes and looking at boxes, there were still 61 boxes in that storage room. And remember, after that, they only gave 15 boxes back to the National Archives. I thought it was also notable, as you indicated in your opening, all of the different descriptions of the use of of what the the Jack Smith had learned from the surveillance video and vis-a-vis what Evan Corcoran, one of Trump's attorneys at the time, the attorney who was responsible for turning over classified documents in response to the grand jury subpoena, what, uh, what, what they knew about Evan Corcoran at that time. So it showed that in just that last week before Evan came to go search through the boxes to try to find any classified information to turn over to the Department of Justice, in just that last week alone, Walt Nada was in there actively day after day on three different occasions, sending boxes up to um, Donald Trump, even doing that 
just four days after the FBI interviewed him and talked to him about the importance of that storage room and whether Mr. Trump was looking at any boxes in that storage room. And then, of course, you know, only about 30 boxes were moved back into that storage room after 64 were taken out. We knew that from the indictment, but seeing it play out, as you indicated, the the camera footage of the storage room, what they were able to see and what they weren't able to see and the things that Mr. Nada knew. There's a few little uh, little details and little fun things to look at in there. But overall, doesn't change anything about the case other otherwise to give us a little bit of a window into how strong the probable cause of cause was. But what is still unknown is who are some of the other witnesses? Because I think that's why we still see so many redactions. There is information the government is still trying to protect here. Andrew Weissman, your analysis was very similar to your colleague Mary's. There's also just the fact that when you look through it and you see just a little bit more information, you're reminded how unusual, how unprecedented, how wild this all is. Absolutely. So I think, um, of course, I always agree with Mary on everything, um, but the the, the the orchestration of the obstruction is what it is true that it is in the indictment, as Mary said. But these have it's very detailed, as Mary sort of was alluding to, of sort of exactly what the former president and Walt Nata were doing. And that is, you know, as we were talking about before, it, it's still worth remembering. This is the former president of the United States, and it is in black and white as to this dance so that um, Mr. Corcoran could come in and unknowingly, on his part, lie to the government and say, you have everything now, when in fact there was this orchestrated thing to to take out all of the material that, that the former president didn't want to go. So, the, I mean, it's really remarkable that this is happening and that it also really explains why they got the search. If you remember, we were all sort of going, oh, my God, this is unprecedented. Why did they do this? Why did they have to do it? And you read this unredacted piece and it makes it absolutely clear what they were sitting on, which was that they knew that there'd been this attempt to obstruct justice. Well, speaking of Walt Nada, I wonder, Mary, what you make of this reporting, that, that one of his problems is that the Trump team doesn't want to pay the rates that at least one local lawyer in Florida requested. Talk me through why Trump would even be involved in that decision. Well, you know, Trump, I mean, it's a pack, right, that is Trump's pack, essentially. And uh, as a co-defendant and as someone who's, you know, approving of, of paying Walt Nada's bills, he's wanting to have a say in this. And, you know, as you indicated in the opening, this is not uncommon. It's like in a corporation. In fact, Andrew can speak to this even even more than I can. You know, when a, a number of different corporate officials are being investigated, they're, they're all having their attorneys paid for. But it is really troublesome because Walt Nada is in a very different position than Mr. Trump. Yes, he's got culpability. He's indicted. He's charged now now with crimes, and these are serious crimes. But if you think about the power imbalance between Mr. Mm -hmm. Trump and his valet, Walt Nada, it's troublesome to think that Trump would be involved in sort of pulling the strings on who would represent Walt Nada. I mean, if I were Walt Nada's attorney, I would really be trying to figure out if there isn't a way to get it, make some agreement with the United States. And, you know, I'm sure at various times that's been considered, but that is very much not in the interest of Mr. Trump. And so, you know, these are things that I, I think could um, be causing that some of this delay because it could very well be that it's not just all about money. 
but that there are attorneys who uh, are concerned about their ability to zealously re- represent their client in in these circumstances. So this arraignment has already been de- delayed twice. It's it's nine twelve p.m. on the East Coast, it, 11 a.m. tomorrow. If he doesn't have a lawyer, what then? So so the rules um, are that he has to have a local Florida lawyer um, and he does have an, an out of town lawyer. But the rules are there that you have to have a local lawyer to sort of sponsor you. Um, the judge has a number of options. One is obviously the judge can kick the can down the road yet again. That would not be what I would advise, because at some point, you know what? This isn't like Scheherazade, which you kept on putting off the, at the last day because you just keep on telling you know, saying, I mean, no one wants to go to trial if you're a defendant. So you, do, you obviously want to delay things. That's true for Walt Nada. It's true for Donald Trump. But um, so one option is another delay. But the other option is that the court says, you know what? I'm appointing a lawyer right now to represent you in connection with this arraignment. And you are going to, because you can afford it, you're going to repay um, the fees for that attorney. But we're going to go forward. Um, And when you get your lawyer, fine. If you don't get a lawyer, um, you'll represent yourself since that is constitutional as well. Um, so the, the court does have options to move this along um, because you, d- you really aren't held hostage to someone saying, I just can't find counsel. But it is worth noting, but to your question to Mary, that it is not improper or illegal to have somebody else pay for counsel. But, of course, money can be power. Um, to state the obvious. And so what Mary was saying is that if you have a third party paying for your counsel, if you are a responsible lawyer, your client is still your client. It doesn't matter who is paying you. And you, that it, it puts you in a difficult position. You have to be willing to say, no, it doesn't matter that Donald Trump or a PAC is paying me. My loyalty is to Walt Nata. Um, so that could be one of the complications here is, is they want to find a lawyer who might not perhaps be so ethical. 11 a.m. tomorrow, we will see who Walt Nata shows up with. Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for the national security at the Department of Justice. Thank you so much for getting us started. Andrew Weissman, you are sticking with me. We have a lot more to get to tonight, including a Trump appointed judge's controversial ruling that guts the federal government's ability to fight online misinformation. Plus, today, activists in Ohio got enough signatures to get an initiative guaranteeing abortion rights on the ballot even as the Republican-led legislature tries some tricky moves to stack the deck in their favor. That's next. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. 
I've never been a fan of Facebook, as you probably know. I've never been a big Zuckerberg fan. I think he's a real problem. Section 230 should be revoked immediately. Should be revoked, number one. It should be revoked because it is not merely an internet company. It is propagating falsehoods they know to be false. That was Joe Biden in an interview with the New York Times editorial board back in 2020. Biden was criticizing the CEO of then Facebook, now Meta, Mark Zuckerberg, and arguing for repealing a federal law shielding big tech companies from liability over what gets posted on their platforms. Joe Biden was not president when he gave that interview. He wasn't even the Democratic nominee at that point. And the position he articulated on reforming big tech was one that many Democrats and Republicans have held for some time. But nevertheless, Republican lawmakers cited that interview as evidence that the government somehow coerced social media companies into suppressing free speech online. It's part of a lawsuit brought by the Republican attorneys general of Louisiana and Florida, which accuses the Biden administration of pressuring social media companies to take down conservative content. Yesterday, on the 4th of July, a Trump-appointed federal judge sided with those Republican attorneys general, issuing an injunction that bars federal agencies like the FBI and the Department of Health and Human Services from contacting social media companies about posts they think should be taken down. The Trump-appointed judge claimed there was, quote, evidence of a massive effort from the White House to federal agencies to suppress speech based on its content. The Biden administration is appealing the ruling but for now, that decision effectively blocks the federal government from asking sites to take down online misinformation about issues like whether vaccines work, they do, or whether or not the 2020 election was stolen, it was not. The judge did make exceptions to allow the federal government to contact social media companies about things like national security threats and criminal activity. Legal experts say those exceptions are vague, leave open questions about what exactly the government can and cannot do. Andrew Weissman is back with us. Andrew Weissman, you described yourself as angry over this ruling, which is not often a word I associate with Andrew Weissman. Tell me, tell me why I got you. So um, I'm going to give you two examples, one from my own personal experience and one that was cited by the court as um, what is so problematic. So one from the court. The court said, as an example of the uh, current administration being so biased against conservatives, um, was when the government went to tech, tech companies and said, you need to do something about fake Fauci accounts mm -hmm. saying that you do not need to be vaccinated and that they're dangerous, essentially spinning out misinformation that would cost people's lives. Um, that was given as an example by the court of something that is um, violative of the First Amendment. Um, so committing fraud by having a fake account at, that at the cost of people's lives is not protected by the First Amendment. <laughs> Correct. Um, and it's also not anti-conservative. It is anti it is saying that you're pro facts and you're pro science. Um, and so that's one example. The other is when I was the general counsel of the FBI, there was information that we had uh, that, that would put in danger senior government officials and that, that were overseas and gave locations. Um, and this was being posted online. And what you do in a situation like that is you call up a tech company, their general counsel, and you raise with them the issue of, have you seen these posts? We understand that they would violate your own policies. Your own policies. Your own policies. Can you take a look at this? Usually what the general counsel says is, thank you so much for raising this. It hadn't bubbled up to me. 
understandable, um, and they do an evaluation. The idea that a court would say that you cannot do that and that that somehow is involved in politics when what you are doing is making people safer is, is just barely beyond the pale. Um, I, you know, I, I think it should be noted that the government is appealing yep. um, this and they filed an appeal this evening. So this is, you know, hot off the presses from yesterday. But you know, this is DOJ taking an immediate appeal because this is something that is makes a total sense that this happened in terms of taking an appeal so quickly because there really is danger in terms of this kind of ruling. And I don't think the exceptions that you noted in any way work because they're actually not at all in the opinion. The opinion suggests that they're not, none of that should be an exception. So there's sort of a tagline, and it's really unclear how those actually are going to be, if they, this opinion stands, how you're supposed to apply those, because he's actually saying you can't do things um, that, would, that actually are criminal. Um, to try and stop those. You can't try and stop things that would be criminal. 150-page ruling on July 4th sort of tells you a lot of what you need to know. Andrew Weissman, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Still to come tonight, the epidemic of gun violence in America feels like an unsolvable problem, but there is still action happening at the state level. Maryland Governor Westmore is going to join us to talk about it. That's coming up. But first, Ohioans sign up in big numbers to put the right to abortion on the ballot. Will it be enough to overcome some major new obstacles thrown their way by the Republican-led legislature? That's next. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. While you were grilling a hot dog or enjoying other 4th of July festivities, this is how Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley was marking the holiday with a tweet. Quote, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity and freedom of worship here. That quote, Holly tweeted while claiming to cite 18th century revolutionary and slave owner Patrick Henry was both false and fake. But Senator Holly's fake quote served a real purpose. That viewpoint that Christianity is or should be the bedrock of our country has been used to curtail rights nationwide. Christian activist groups like Alliance for Defending Freedom and the National Right to Life have lobbied lawmakers, judges, even Supreme Court justices for years to overturn Roe. Since they got the job done with the Dobbs decision last year, 
15 states across the country have banned most abortions. In Ohio, specifically, a six-week abortion ban went into effect just hours after Roe was overturned. A few months later, a judge blocked that ban, which means that, at least for now, abortion remains legal there until 22 weeks of pregnancy. Reproductive rights groups are unwilling to wait until the next threat to abortion access to take action. Instead, they have mobilized to shore up the right to an abortion in Ohio. They have proposed an amendment to the state constitution that would ensure the right for everyone to, quote, make and carry out one's own reproductive decisions up to and including abortion until the fetus is viable on its own. The amendment would also ban the state from interfering directly or indirectly with anyone's reproductive health decisions, with few exceptions. But groups like Center for Christian Virtue and Ohio Right to Life have lobbied the Republican-led legislature to help make it harder to get that measure on the November ballot. In March, a state Senate committee heard from members of Christian advocacy groups with mission statements like, quote, advocating for public policy that reflects the truth of the gospel. In this case, they were advocating to change the voting threshold needed to pass a state constitutional amendment to require a 60 percent supermajority of Ohio voters, not just a simple majority. They were successful. The legislature is allowing voters to cast ballots in August to decide whether a 60 percent supermajority will be required for a constitutional amendment to pass. Now, that's despite the fact just months ago. Republican lawmakers voted against adding a special election in August. Holding a late summer vote is an apparent victory. That's because within the past year, six states, including states as red as Kansas, have voted on ballot measures and amendments in support of the right to abortion. And today in Ohio, abortion rights advocates got one step closer to joining those states. They filed more than 700,000 signatures put a constitutional amendment on Ohio's November ballot, almost double what they needed. In Ohio, where 59% of the electorate supports enshrining abortion rights in the state constitution, that amendment seems likely to pass in November. Unless the Republican 60% supermajority measure passes next month. Joining us now, Dr. Marcela Acevedo, co-founder of Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights, one of the groups aiding the ballot initiative signature collection, and David Pepper, a former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party and author of Saving Democracy, a user's manual for every American. Dr. Acevedo, David, thank you both so much for being here. Dr. Acevedo, I want to begin with you. State officials still have to review the signatures, but it looks like this measure to amend the state constitution very likely to appear on the November ballot. Are you surprised that you got as many signatures as you did? How difficult was this effort? You know, um, thank you for having me, Alex. And overall, um, we were told it was going to be heavy lifting. Um, about a year ago, uh, when we founded the Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights and Protect Choice Ohio, um, we knew we had heavy lifting um, folks thought that it would be hard um, to gather this many signatures in such a short amount of time. And we started from the ground up. You know, we wrote the amendment, uh, we put up the infrastructure, we gathered folks of all sorts of expertise to get this done. Um, and in just over 12 weeks, we've reached 700,000 people in every single one of Ohio's 88 counties. Um, 
I don't want to say that I'm surprised because I'm not. Ohioans are for pro-choice. They are for having their own families make their own decisions. Um, and we could feel this on the ground. When we talked to people, when we went to group meetings, when we, we spoke to um, constituents all over um, the state, this is what we heard. We heard them say that they wanted to be responsible for their own medical decisions. David, there's now a separate ballot measure the voters will decide on in a separate special election in August. Voters are going to decide whether the threshold for approving a state constitutional amendment should be increased to 60 percent of the vote. We know from recent polling that 59 percent of Ohio voters are in favor of protecting abortion in the state constitution. 5960, is that a coincidence? No, they knew full well that this is an unpopular, that their side is unpopular. They know that Ohio is a pro-choice state. They're scared to death of what happened in Kansas and other states, especially that story of the 10-year-old rape victim having to go to Indiana, truly toxic in a state like Ohio. So they're trying to change the rules, rig the, rig the results uh, beforehand. Uh, I don't think it'll work, but it, people do need to see that this August election is incredibly important. And they're hoping for a low turnout. They're hoping that no one sees it. Uh, but my hope is that people see the connection. If they do, my hope is we overcome it in August with a no vote and then vote yes on the amendment that the signatures came in for today. David, here's the thing. Earlier this year, Ohio Republicans decided that August special elections were too costly to be worthwhile. They passed a law effectively ending August elections, but they scheduled a special election for next month anyway. I just I wonder if you were surprised by that apparent hypocrisy. No, I mean, this is an absolutely lawless bunch. This is the most corrupt uh, state house in the country. The former speaker was sentenced to 20 years in federal prison just last week for the biggest bribery scandal in Ohio history. They're sitting in a gerrymandered set of districts that violate the Ohio Constitution. They break the law all the time here. Uh, and in this case, knowing that they would lose in November, they broke their own law that said August special elections shouldn't be allowed our tainted Supreme Court upheld it. We literally have a situation of an election being held on a date that currently violates the Ohio Revised Code. But that's what's happening in all these states around the country. They are we are reaching a level of lawlessness. And once it re once it's reached once, they go again and again. And that's why, you know, in, in some cases, even court challenges that to any common sense, you know, 12 year old would make sense in states like Ohio. Don't go that far. So now it's in the hands of the people. It's clearly bizarre, lawless. We just need to show up in big numbers in August and end this nonsense and then show up in November and vote yes in the kind of 59 or 60 percent numbers that's happening here in Ohio, in Kansas, even in Kentucky, for goodness sakes. Uh, you know, the Dobbs decision said this should go in the hands of the people. As flawed as that decision was, it said it should go in the hands of the people. And what these Ohio legislators are doing is they're doing everything they can to keep it from going in the hands of the people because they know the people don't agree with what they're doing. Right. I mean, Dr. Acevedo, in the past year, states like Michigan voted to add amendments to protect the right to abortion. States like Kansas voted against amendments that would have established no right to abortion in the state, the patchwork of abortion access in the country. It, it seems like it comes down to which party controls the legislature, who serves as governor, and whether voters can, in fact, vote on amendments. I wonder, as a physician, how it feels to know that decisions that are being made in the room 
with your patient aren't necessarily being dictated by science or the gold standard of medical care, but rather the political reality of any state at any given moment. You know, exactly. Um, you, you got it. Um, that is what was frustrating to us. And that's what happened right away. Um, myself, my colleagues, we were all worried of the decisions that we would have to make that made no sense, that endangered our patients' lives, that, to be honest, took the dignity um, away from our patients. Um, and because of that, this was not something that could wait till 2024. This was not something that we could just sit um, and we were thankful that in Ohio, we do have that ability. The citizens-led ballot initiative was something that we could pursue, um, bring the power back to our patients, bring the power back to our people, um, because um, I cannot practice medicine um, if the politicians and the government around me tie my hands. David, when you look at the number of signatures that were able to be collected, that is a, a promising start. I wonder if you feel in the lead up to both August and November, if Democrats are properly organized and resourced to do what they need to do to get this over the finish line. I mean, I honestly think that the Republicans here uh, breathe life into a Democratic Party that you know, had a tough last November. And so the organizing that's taken place, the incredible effort by the, the doctor's organization, so many other partnerships happening. The Ohio Democratic Party, I think, gathered more than 100,000 signatures. So I think, you know, as bad as all this is, and it's bad, and, and the results are as, as horrible as that 10-year-old rape victim, if we do not succeed here, having to go to Indiana there's an opportunity here of, of waking a sleeping giant that, 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 again, exposes not just how extreme this legislature is, but how lawless they are. And at a certain point, I think we have an opportunity now to make that very clear. It's painfully clear to a lot of Ohioans. And so I think they've given an opportunity when otherwise it might have been a tougher year to get organized. So you have an August opportunity to get organized. You have another you have a November opportunity to get organized. And then next year we have a Senate race and three Supreme Court seats, which will be pivotal to interpreting, however, you know, the, the constitutional amendments that are passing. So this gives an opportunity to really energize and organize. It may not have been there otherwise. So let's take the opportunity, even though it's in a, a sort of a, a result of some really disturbing behavior by a really lawless group of people. And we will all be watching Dr. Marcel Azevedo and David Pepper. Thank you both so much for your time and for your expertise tonight. When we come back, another weekend in America characterized by gun violence. But while gun reform seems to have stalled at the federal level, states can still take action. Maryland Governor Wes Moore joins us next. Last year, on the 4th of July, a gunman carrying a semi-automatic rifle opened fire on a parade in Highland Park, Illinois, killing seven people and injuring 48 more in a matter of seconds. Most of the victims were parents and grandparents, including a young couple who were attending the festivities with their two-year-old son. As painful as this all sounds, the shooting in Highland Park was just one of nearly 650 mass shootings registered in the U.S. last year alone. This year, very little has changed, just looking at the past 4th of July weekend. On Sunday, a shooting at a crowded neighborhood party in Baltimore left two people dead and 28 wounded, most of them teenagers between the ages of 13 and 19. The next day, on Monday, three people were killed and eight others wounded after gunfire erupted in a downtown neighborhood in Fort Worth, Texas. That same day, five people were killed after a shooter fired randomly at vehicles and pedestrians in southwest Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. On Tuesday, 
Four people died and seven others were wounded after a mass shooting at a 4th of July block party in Shreveport, Louisiana. This morning, around 1 a.m., nine people were shot and wounded in Washington, D.C., near 20 minutes from the White House. About an hour later, five people were shot and wounded in the Boston neighborhood of Dorchester. Soon after, in Salisbury, Maryland, a teenager was killed, six others were wounded in a mass shooting at another 4th of July block party. That list is shocking, but it's incomplete. The Gun Violence Archive, a nonprofit organization documenting gun violence in this country, counted 22 mass shootings this weekend alone, resulting in 20 people killed and 126 injured. Yesterday, President Biden, frustrated with what he calls an epidemic of gun violence, called on Congress to pass gun control reforms banning assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. The president is asking Congress to do it because, well, he can't. In fact, at the executive level, there isn't much he can do at this point. On the state level, however... That story changes. Governors can do more, and at least some Democrats are trying to. In Illinois, earlier this year, Governor J.B. Pritzker signed legislation banning assault weapons and the sale of high-capacity magazines. Republicans took him to the Supreme Court for it, but the justices declined to intervene. Soon after, Maryland acted too. Two months ago, Governor Wes Moore, a Democrat, signed a law making it illegal to carry a concealed handgun in certain public areas, including schools, government buildings, and medical facilities. Joining us now is Maryland Governor Wes Moore. Governor, thank you for being with us. You recently signed legislation to curb gun violence in your state. Uh, just this past weekend, multiple gun-related incidents, including a mass shooting. What more can be done in Maryland at the local level to prevent these incidents? A lot more can be done, uh, and a lot more will be done. I, I tell you, my my weekend started on early on Saturday morning at around 2.30 in the morning when the mayor of Baltimore called me to tell me about the mass casualty, the mass shooting that took place in the city of Baltimore. And then I proceeded to spend uh, my weekend coordinating both federal, state, and local uh, responses to it, making sure that we are both putting all state resources that we can towards uh, making sure that people are held to account and there will be justice for these crimes and also making sure that the communities are getting what they need. I spent my weekend working with first responders and, and doctors who were literally saving lives all weekend long. Uh, all weekend long. I spent my weekend working with local, with local officials and working in communities and spending time with the people inside the community. That's how I spent my 4th of July weekend. But here's what we also know. Over a dozen other governors in this country were doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. We've got an absolute crisis on our hands. And so when we think about what it is that we can do, we need for the federal government to act. We need Congress to act on this, but we're not waiting. And so when we think about the measures that Maryland has done to do things like raising the age to 21 for people to purchase a weapon, for making sure that a person with a history of mental illness and a history of violence cannot purchase a weapon. But we know even though, while we're proud of the bills that I signed along those lines, it's still not going to be enough. We have got to get these illegal guns out of our neighborhoods and off of our streets. We've got to make sure that violent offenders are actually, are, there's actually consequences to that. And we've got to be able to work across state lines with our partners. Because, for example, in the city of Baltimore, 65 percent of the guns that have been confiscated in the city of Baltimore are not from the state of Maryland. So we've got to be able to work with our regional partners to be able to address something that is an absolute national crisis right now.
When you talk about the limits to what can be done at the state level and the action that needs to come from Congress, I wonder what you believe the pressure points that governors like yourself can hit to get Congress to act. And if you find any appetite among your Republican colleagues, Republican governors, if they are interested in bringing that fight to the federal government. Yes, the, the, the thing that we know is we, we've got to depoliticize this. This is not a Democratic or a Republican issue because this is hitting all of our communities. While I was working closely with the mayor of Baltimore, who's a Democrat, during the weekend to be able to respond and make sure that our communities were getting the need, getting what they needed, and also making sure we can bring these people to justice, the ones who are responsible for the shooting, this morning and all throughout the day, I was also working with the Republican county executive of Wacomico County because we just had another mass shooting in Salisbury in the state of Maryland, in the Eastern Shore. So this is not a Democratic or Republican issue. We are watching states. We are watching jurisdictions around the country. We're watching governors, both Democrat and Republicans, that are dealing with this issue. And what we collectively need is not just a sense of of cooperation between the state and the locals and between states, but that's the type of leadership and that's the type of coordination that we have to be able to see in Congress as well. Governor, I have about a minute left, but I do want to ask you, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill that went into effect Saturday, allowing people to legally carry a firearm without a permit. I I wonder how much it complicates your gun safety efforts when when other governors, DeSantis, one example, are, are moving in the opposite direction. It, it absolutely complicates it because because we know that that uh, the work that we are doing here in the state of Maryland, we need to have our partners, uh, our other governors who are also on the same sheet when it comes to being able to make sure that their communities are safe. But I also know that the work that we are doing here in the state of Maryland, when we are focusing on things like making sure that a person cannot and will not bring a firearm into places like government buildings, and in places like nurseries, because there's no reason for it. And so while that might be the direction of other governors, uh, I know that to keep the people safe, it means doing things like what we're doing here in the state of Maryland, which is not just making sure we're putting common sense gun laws together here in the state of Maryland, but also making sure that we're addressing the fact that there are 300 million guns in the United States. And those are just the ones that we know about. That doesn't include the ghost guns and the unregistered guns and the illegal guns that continue to flood into Maryland communities. So in Maryland, we are going to make sure that we're going to keep our community safe and work in partnership to put common sense gun laws that can work to make sure that our communities can thrive and our children can grow. Maryland Governor Westmore. Governor, thank you. We'll be right back. In 2019, the Supreme Court reversed the conviction of a Mississippi death row prisoner named Curtis Flowers, who had been sentenced to death for the murders of four people in 1996. He'd actually been tried for the crime six times. The court ruled in a 7-2 decision that the prosecutor on the case worked to block black citizens from serving as jurors in the trials. So Flowers' conviction was thrown out. Now... Four years later, another Mississippi man named Tony Clark has been sentenced to death for a 2014 murder. His lawyer, citing that 2019 Supreme Court ruling, claimed the prosecutors focused on blocking black citizens from his jury. And last week, the Supreme Court declined to consider Clark's appeal. Justice Sotomayor, joined by fellow liberal justices Kagan and Katanji Brown-Jackson, wrote a blistering dissent criticizing both the Mississippi Supreme Court and her own fellow conservative justices, characterizing their decisions as, quote, a 
a signal from the Mississippi Supreme Court that it intends to carry on with business as usual, no matter what this court said in Flowers. By allowing the same court to make the same mistakes, applying the same standard, this court acquiesces the Mississippi Supreme Court's noncompliance. Today, this court tells the Mississippi Supreme Court that it has called our bluff. This court is unwilling to do what is necessary to defend its own precedent. In 2023, the Supreme Court is ignoring its own work and the precedent it set. That 2019 decision in Flowers was hailed for sending a message to lower courts to be vigilant about racial bias in the criminal justice system. But now, as Justice Sotomayor puts it, because this court refuses to intervene, a black man will be put to death in the state of Mississippi based on the decision of a jury that was plausibly selected based on race. That is a tragedy. And that does it for us tonight. Alex is going to be back here tomorrow. I'll see you this weekend on my show, American Voices, 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern.